1: Welcome back to the Jewish Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Moses Lappin, and today I'm joined by Professor Daniel Schwartz to discuss his book, The First Modern Jew, Spinoza and the History of an Image, published in 2012 by Princeton University Press. Professor Schwartz is an Associate Professor of History and the Director of the Judaic Studies Program at George Washington University. Our topic of conversation today, The First Modern Jew, Spinoza and the History of an Image, is a history of the reception of Spinoza that spans the 17th to 21st centuries in Western and Eastern Europe, as well as in America and Israel. It's a work that uncovers the malleable nature of Spinoza as a symbol in many different contexts. Research over the last several decades has placed Spinoza at the center of many different intellectual and cultural currents, marking him perhaps as the intellectual hero of the early modern period. Rather than focus on his on his philosophy and intellectual influence. In his book, Professor Schwartz seeks to understand Spinoza as a cultural figure to Jews, an image that turns up in many crucial junctures in modern Jewish history, at times in conflict with one another. In our conversation today, we will explore the uses of this image to better understand modernity in, in a larger sense and the question of identity. What does it mean to be a Jew? Although the book is not new, I chose to have Professor Schwartz on the podcast today spotlight one of the most innovative books in Jewish studies, a book that I believe demands a wider audience. Not only is it a unique contribution to the crowded discourse on Spinoza and provides a new avenue to understand the course of modern Jewish history, its scope and depth and breadth and methodological sophistication allows it to be read fruitfully from many different angles. Welcome, Professor Schwartz, to the New Books Network. I'm delighted to have you with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Uh, before we begin in earnest, uh, let's talk a little bit about reception history. Uh, what does that mean, and uh, how is it different from other historiographical methods?
0: Sure. Uh, well, I mean, reception history is basically uh, the attempt to kind of trace uh, how uh, anything from a you know particular biographical figure to a uh, specific work to a particular idea or a body of ideas. Uh, The aim is to understand how any of the above that I mentioned uh, were kind of subsequently interpreted, uh, often kind of reworked, repackaged, uh, all in light of, you know, kind of changes in the times. Uh, And so it's a way of trying to understand not just simply the figure or the uh, ideas in their original historical context, but actually to get a better gauge on how they were understood uh, and how they were effective. Um, And so I think it's, you know, it's a crucial branch of both intellectual and cultural history. The title of your
1: book is The First Modern Jew. Uh, and yet you write in the introduction that you don't argue that Spinoza was the quote-unquote first modern Jew or the beginning of Jewish, modern Jewish history. Uh, can you give us a sense of the type of questions the book does seek to understand and the role of the image of Spinoza in doing this?
0: I, I kind of was mainly interested in understanding kind of the genesis of this particular – not just image of Spinoza, but this idea – uh, about where kind of Jewish modernity begins. And obviously there's been, you know, a, a whole literature debating the origins of modern Jewish history, the modern period of Jewish history. Um, and, you know, there are only so many people who have actually argued that we should begin in 17th century Amsterdam with Spinoza specifically. Uh, and yet this is a kind of a recurring um, motif for trope this idea of spinoza as you know the first modern sometimes you know the first secular Jew although i would argue that those are not you know um synonymous uh but basically what i was interested in understanding is now, how did Spinoza come to be seen in this way? Uh, because obviously, as a kind of description of Spinoza's own biography, right, that is a label that really has no meaning, uh, which isn't to say that it, you know, can't be applied. I mean, often historians, you know, we use concepts that were unknown to the figures themselves. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, Spinoza w- did not kind of justify his departures uh, from Jewish law, from traditional Jewish beliefs on the basis of this idea that I'm a new type of Jew, I'm a modern Jew, I'm a secular Jew. Uh, and so I was interested in understanding uh, both the kind of origins of this idea and then its subsequent history. And what was interesting to me was to see just how many different iterations of the idea Uh, that there were. So it's almost a kind of genealogy of a particular idea about Spinoza and its effects.
1: Your book is, in a sense, a chronological narrative of modern Jewish history. It begins in 17th century Amsterdam uh, before moving to 18th century Berlin and 19th century Eastern Europe and then on to uh, Israel and America in the 20th century. Um, What led you to work on the project? And could you tell us a little bit about the genesis and the way in which the project unfolded?
0: When I was studying in graduate school at Columbia, that was where I did my PhD in Jewish history. My mentor was the late Yosef Chaim Yerushalmi, and i had taken a number of courses with him that related to issues of historical texts or history and memory, Um, and so – you know during some of our conversations when we would talk about uh possible dissertation topics, you know I would mention that kind of broadly speaking, I was also interested in exploring the kind of nexus of historical conscious understood um, historical consciousness understood in a kind of broad manner uh that it would you know encompass both kind of historiography, uh, you know, but also collective memory, uh, the nexus between that and constructions of modern Jewish identity. Uh, And he was actually the one who, you know, planted the idea in my head of uh, exploring uh, kind of Spinoza's reception. He actually had a copy of an important bibliography of works related to Spinoza, uh, sometimes called Spinozana, uh, that was compiled by uh, a, a librarian at the Hebrew Union College in the early 20th century, whose name was Adolf Ako who was an avid Spinozist, uh, and he had uh, he had compiled all sorts of note cards index cards i'm sorry mimeographed them uh that related to spinoza in some fashion and they were you know categorized by period subject and so this gave me a real kind of source to begin with uh but i really i you know i actually you know i didn't know entirely what the scope of it would be Um, And, you know, that evolved over time. And, you know, as I kind of moved farther into it, I thought, you know, this really is something that I would like to try to take up until the present. Um, You know, what I tend to do uh, is often kind of like parachute into key moments, as you said at the beginning, like kind of key junctures uh, in Uh, you know, the development of modern Jewish history or the kind of um, emergence of new uh, Jewish ideologies and to look at kind of at those moments, you know, try to kind of get a better sense of Spinoza's reception.
1: Spinoza is uh, famous for being excommunicated, uh, a concept that to someone in 2018 may seem a bit strange. Um, What does it mean that he was a heretic uh, and can you begin to tell us a little bit of his reception in 17th century Amsterdam by Jews and non-Jews, uh, both during his life and after he passed?
0: I mean, I, I think, you know, the the definition of a heretic, uh, you know, there isn't, I mean, uh, you know, there are, there are various kind of, you know, sayings in the Talmud, you know, or in, you know, rabbinic literature about certain beliefs that if one rejects, you know, one doesn't have a place uh, in the world to come. Uh, but you don't have the same type of kind of you know clearly worked out doctrinal ideas of what constitutes heresy uh, in Judaism uh, that you would let's say in Catholicism, uh, but nevertheless um, let 's put it this way: if Spinoza were disseminating uh, the kind of ideas uh, that he would later publish in the theological political treatise, um, questioning the divine origin of scripture, questioning, uh, the supernatural nature of God or biblical miracles, um, questioning the validity of Jewish law, uh, you know, all of these ideas would certainly be enough, uh, to kind of remove one self, uh, from the fold. Uh, that said, you know, this was a very interesting community, this Amsterdam community in that it was... Comprised at least initially the Sephardic community was comprised of former conversos uh people who had lived as new Christians in Spain or Portugal uh, and had escaped uh, to uh Amsterdam, where they were able to kind of return so to speak, even though often they had been generations removed from uh, kind of open Judaism, but they were able to kind of return to uh, kind of rabbinic Judaism. Uh, But it was a community that was uh, somewhat insecure as a result. And so they would often use excommunication uh, to p- to punish uh, a whole range of behaviors, including uh, conduct that was far less grave than that of Spinoza. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily so uh, unusual that the community would resort to excommunication of some sort. What was striking was the extent of it, uh, the sweep of it, uh, that this wasn't just a case of excommunicating Spinoza for a week or so, or saying, you know, that for such and such a time, you can't be called to the Torah. Uh, this was basically a total anathema, uh, and, you know, really, you know, a kind of, uh, just total expulsion of Spinoza from the community, uh, you know although though there are many who think that kind of spinoza uh you know there was a 20th century biographer of spinoza named louis foyer who said that spinoza had essentially decommunicated himself before he was excommunicated uh but in terms of his early reception um you know a lot of it kind of really began in earnest in the 1670s so spinoza is excommunicated in 1656 uh Publishes a work, the only work really published under his own name in 1663, which is basically a kind of reinterpretation of certain Cartesian principles. Uh, But the first kind of scandalous work that he publishes is the Theological Political Treatise, which I mentioned before in 1670. And he publishes it anonymously, but uh it doesn't seem like anybody was really fooled uh and this is where this is when Spinoza really becomes this kind of uh you know bete noir uh of the you know kind of theological establishment uh Throughout Europe. And not just the, not just theologians, you know, ordinary individuals were, were troubled by what Spinoza was saying as well. And so you have the beginning of a torrent of anti-Spinozist literature, which only kind of gains in intensity after Spinoza dies in 1677. And his posthumous works are published, which include his magnum opus, The Ethics. Uh, this is where he essentially argues that there is only one substance, which we can call either God. God or Nature. Uh, and both books are placed on the Inquisition's list of forbidden books. Uh, they're banned throughout Europe. Uh, again, you have this flood of anti Spinozist literature. Uh, what's striking to me is that, at least in the early phases, uh, you know, the first hundred years or so after Spinoza's um, excommunication from Sephardic Amsterdam, uh, the number of actually Jewish responses to his thought is surprisingly small. And perhaps you know, maybe we might even say not surprisingly, given that part of the excommunication or the writ of excommunication actually forbid reading uh, anything that was written by him so that anybody who was going to write a formal response, you know, could be, you know, f- held responsible for actually uh, reading his stuff. But, you know, we don't necessarily know how effective that uh, that taboo was in actually, you know, preventing Jews from from reading Spinoza. But there is really a paucity of Jewish responses. Um, there are a few incidents that appear to involve uh, Spinoza's philosophy, including a controversy that happens in the early 18th century in England uh, involving a, a rabbi named. Uh, David or, you know, David Nieto, uh, who was the rabbi of the Sephardic uh, synagogue in London, who gave a sermon where he basically identified God with nature. Uh, what he meant by it was something very different uh, from what Spinoza intended. But nevertheless, uh, there was an accusation, at least, that he was disseminating pantheism. Uh, he was ultimately kind of exculpated of this uh, in a rabbinic opinion uh, by, uh by a German rabbi, Tzvi Ashkenazi, the father of of Jacob Emden, a very important 18th century rabbi. But for the most part, there really isn't much in terms of a Jewish response to Spinoza. Most of the responses to Spinoza, uh, whether positive or more frequently negative, were from Christians.
1: The first setting outside of Amsterdam you explore in the book is uh, Moses Mendelssohn's Berlin, Uh, And you cover two central topics there. The first is the question of the relationship between religion and state or creed and law, uh, particularly as it pertains to Jews. Um, What what role did Spinoza's image play here? And the the second thing you cover in in this chapter is the quote unquote Spinoza controversy. Um, So I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about Spinozism and why it was such a lightning rod uh, for controversy.
0: Uh, Well, you know, in in terms of, in terms of your first question, I mean, the kind of relationship between kind of religion and state, um, you know, this became, you know, a a crucial issue among uh, kind of Enlightenment thinkers, uh, including uh, Mendelssohn. And... um, Mendel, you know Mendelssohn's Moses Mendelssohn is you know kind of great uh, 18th century uh, German philosopher. You know, a, you know, a stalwart of the kind of German Enlightenment, but also a, a crucial figure in the kind of genealogy of the Jewish Enlightenment. Uh, late in his life, uh, wrote a work uh, entitled uh, Jerusalem uh, that was really really written uh, in order to kind of uh, kind of defend uh, the idea that, you know, Judaism was not a kind of theocratic religion uh, so that one could kind of embrace fundamentally liberal principles while remaining uh, a loyal Jew. Uh, and what's interesting is that even though Spinoza really isn't um, kind of directly uh referenced in the book, but you can see Mendelssohn kind of almost appropriating certain Spinozist ideas. Um, So for example, uh, the idea that uh, the Torah or the Mosaic uh, law, that it was kind of fundamentally legislative, uh, that, uh, that there was kind of initially a kind of uh, theocratic element to it, uh, but the idea was that it was supposed to be um, a legal system, uh, not you know a, like kind of Christianity, a, a body of you know mysteries or dogmas, but it was supposed to relate to actions in in particular, um, and you know whereas kind of Spinoza had used this to argue that once the the ancient kind of Hebrew commonwealth, once it was destroyed, uh, the Mosaic law lost its validity. Uh, Mendelssohn argues, no, it didn't lose its validity. Um, You know, it simply became a voluntary law. But because of its voluntarism, uh, it kind of posed no uh, threat to, you know, kind of full kind of membership uh, in, you know, the modern state. In other words, it wasn't, you know, a kind of, a separate legal system that, you know, conflicted uh, with state law. Uh, So, you know, you can see kind of Mendelssohn kind of almost like working with Spinoza, kind of taking, you know, certain elements of Spinoza's thought uh, that he thinks can be kind of worked in a certain direction uh, and then taking them uh, in a direction that he thinks is both, you know, kind of compatible uh, with, you know, the idea of kind of inclusion of Jews uh, in the state, but also with, you know, the continued validity and authority, even if only in a voluntary sense of Jewish law. Uh, so, you know, that you can see how kind of Spinoza has become relevant there to issues of, you know, religion and state. Uh, in terms of the second question, this Spinoza controversy, uh, of the seventeen eighties um i mean it's uh it's a complicated subject uh in that it involved you know a whole host of German philosophers at the time, but the two who were really at the center in addition to Mendelssohn uh was mendelssohn's uh you know friend uh uh gotolta Freim lessing uh the great you know kind of eighteenth century german philosopher classicist uh playwright. Um, and according to this other philosopher, whose name was Friedrich Jacobi, uh, who was uh, different from both Lessing and Mendelssohn in that he really wasn't a rationalist. He was a kind of anti rationalist philosopher uh, who believed that, uh, you know, kind of philosophy, rationalist philosophy, uh, if kind of taken to its extreme, uh, kind of naturally culminated in Spinozism, in this kind of elimination of free will, in this kind of total determinism. Uh, and he claimed, Jacobi, he had had these conversations with Lessing toward the end of Lessing's life. Lessing died in 1781. He claimed that Lessing had essentially admitted to him that he was a Spinozist. Uh, and so this became this whole kind of back and forth. Uh, first, you know, this kind of private correspondence between Jacobi and Mendelssohn, where Jacobi is reporting this to Mendelssohn and Mendelssohn is trying to kind of. Either deny it or preempt it, or to try to spin it in a way uh, that would be kind of least damaging to Lessing's reputation. Uh, but eventually, this whole debate went public. Uh, Mendelssohn actually published a work where he uh, essentially tried to kind of preempt this whole critique of. Um, of Lessing, uh, or, and really of enlightenment philosophy by arguing that Lessing, if he had embraced Spinoza or Spinozism, that it was what Mendelssohn called the kind of refined Spinozism or a refined pantheism, uh, which would be closer to what, uh, kind of scholars of religion would call, uh, panentheism, um, which is, uh, a term kind of that distinguishes pantheism, which would kind of conflate God and the universe. Panentheism would argue with essentially that the universe uh, is kind of almost like fully permeated by God, but that God still somehow exceeds the universe. Uh, and so, and there were other, you know, there were there were other ways in which, you know, he, he tried to kind of save Lessing's reputation as well. Um, the fact that Mendelssohn had gone public with this then led Jacobi to publish this whole uh, correspondence uh, that he had had with Mendelssohn, all these reports of his conversations with uh, Lessing, and it became something of a kind of ugly feud uh, that kind of then brought in other uh, philosophers of the day, from Kant to Herder all kind of weighing in on this issue, really, not even so much of whether Lessing himself was a Spinozist, but whether Enlightenment philosophy kind of naturally culminated in Spinozism.
1: The book then continues in discussing the little-remembered figure of Berthold Auerbach, uh, who translated Spinoza's work uh, to German and wrote an introductory biography as well as a historical novel. Uh, who, Who was Auerbach, and what was his effort to convert Spinoza uh and how does this relate to his context uh, one of jewish emancipation
0: so Auerbach is um you know is 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 somebody who's not very you know an author not you know certainly not a household name today uh but he was a very well known uh german author Uh, in the 19th century, uh, whose work was published into a whole host of languages. Uh, He was kind of particularly renowned for these so-called Dorfgeschichten, or kind of village stories that uh, basically uh, kind of attempted to depict this kind of peasant culture uh, in the Swabian region that, uh, that Auerbach was from, you know, during this period of modernization. So, you know, as this way of life is kind of vanishing, it's an attempt to kind of preserve it. Uh, But Auerbach uh, kind of began his career before he kind of got around to writing these Dorfgeschichten and became more of simply like a German author. Uh, In the 1840s, uh, he began his Writing career uh, by uh, with this with this whole ambition of writing a series of Jewish works uh, that would basically almost do the same thing for Jewish life that would present kind of uh, kind of traditional Jewish life in the midst uh, you know of disappearing uh, you know under the pressures of modernization uh, and before he even got around to doing that. Auerbach had uh, initially planned to become a rabbi in the mold of uh, one of his friends and really mentors, Abraham Geiger. So this kind of leading figure, uh, you know, in the kind of reform movement that's beginning to crystallize you know, in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Auerbach had initially wanted to pursue that path for various reasons. He was unable to, uh, but he was certainly influenced by this kind of reformist idea of Judaism with its idea, you know, of a Judaism undergoing, you know, continual kind of evolution through time. Uh, The halakha or Jewish law being kind of one of the forms that, uh that Judaism had taken over time but you know perhaps no longer uh being um relevant or binding or valid anyway in 1837 um Auerbach publishes this novel Spinoza, and we know, you know, from letters that he had you know, sent to his uh, cousin Jakob Auerbach. Uh, we have, you know, the, you know, these letters were published in the late 19th century. We know that Auerbach really experienced a very intense feeling of kinship with Spinoza, uh, and that's also something that I was really interested in uh, in my book uh, is the extent of identification that many, you know. Jewish intellectuals would come to feel with Spinoza. Uh, so I'm not saying that you know, Auerbach is absolutely the first to experience this. You know, around the same time, you also have Heinrich Heine. Uh, who is writing about Spinoza, who also felt an intense kinship with Spinoza in the 18th century? Uh, this figure who was also kind of like the black sheep of the Berlin Haskalah, Solomon Maimon, seems to, for a time, to have experienced this feeling of identification with Spinoza. Uh, but Auerbach is really a kind of a crucial figure uh, in not only experiencing this, but first, you know, trying to write a kind of a whole historical novel about Spinoza that focused on kind of reimagining his early years uh, up until really uh, his excommunication. Uh, in other words, a period that had been treated relatively briefly in the early biographies of Spinoza from the 17th century, Auerbach enlarges considerably, uh, and really kind of seems to kind of imagine Spinoza's break with Sephardic Amsterdam as this kind of crucial revolutionary rupture, right? This beginning of something new, uh, of a new type of, you know, uh, cosmopolitan identity, of a new type of Jewish identity. And so, you know, I mean, that ch- that chapter on Auerbach, I mean, I actually kind of uh, in many ways began some of my research with Auerbach because I, t- I see him as being such a crucial figure in the story that I tell. I actually entitled that particular chapter, The First Modern Jew, because I really see that image as emanating from Auerbach's novel. And Auerbach would later go on to translate uh, all of Spinoza's work, at least Spinoza's work that was extant at the time, into German. Uh, and he did this only a few years later, uh, You know, even before he got around uh, to writing these Dorfgeschichten, before he became uh, this major European writer. I would say one thing that was really interesting about Auerbach, and this dis- dis- distinguishes him from say, like, say, someone like Heine, uh, with whom he was really, you know, they, they had a kind of enmity between them. Uh but Auerbach, you know, became um, I mean, essentially we would call him almost today like a, a kind of secular Jew, um, you know, or a liberal Jew. Uh, but you know, he became fairly, you know, uh, estranged from any kind of Jewish religious practice, uh, but he never converted. Uh, he refused to convert, uh, to, you know, Christianity. Uh, and, you know, it's really, I think for him primarily, you know, a kind of an issue of, of honor and a sense of this is where I come from. This is part of what's made me who I am, um, But, uh, you know, he became, in some ways, Auerbach himself became something of a kind of culture hero for 19th century German Jews precisely because he was such a well-known author uh, who had developed an international reputation, but had nevertheless refused to convert. You know, he had remained a Jew.
1: Uh, To continue this this line of thought, uh, can you expand a little bit on what you mean by the quote-unquote image of Spinoza? Uh, Throughout the book, we see that Spinoza was seen at once as a threat, um, while he was also seen as a hero. What do you think contributes to this mutability?
0: I I think there are kind of like two questions there. So, you know, in terms of the image of Spinoza, you know, I I think maybe perhaps, you know, another way of saying is that I was interested primarily... Uh, in kind of perceptions of Spinoza. Uh, and that might include everything from his biographical image to ideas associated with him. But in other words, this wasn't going to be a kind of reception history of the theological political treatise. Uh, this was going to, going to be, as you said uh, in your opening Remarks, uh, in some ways, I was interested in kind of Spinoza as a kind of cultural figure in the modern Jewish pantheon of of heroes. And essentially, I mean, you know, one of the actually one of the titles that I flirted with uh, before settling on the first modern Jew was the title From Heretic to Hero. Or, you know, the heretic as hero, Uh, because what I was really interested was kind of tracing this process of rehabilitation, even if it remained controversial, even if there remained kind of detractors, many detractors, those who kind of wouldn't go along with it. Uh, But, you know, I think that what you have by the 19th century, the mid 19th century, late 19th century, certainly by the early 20th century, uh, you know, is this sense of, you know, you have those who view Spinoza as truly a hero, um, you know, often kind of Jewish intellectuals who had experienced their own, uh, kind of rupture, uh, with, uh, You know, traditional Jewish life with the Jewish community, some of whom had even experienced some type of version of excommunication, uh, but who had become uh, alienated, who had become estranged, and who kind of traced a kind of spiritual paternity back to Spinoza. Uh, So you have kind of, you know, that group on the one hand, those who kind of really view Spinoza as a hero of kind of modern Jewish identity. Uh, You have those, and I don't really spend as much time focusing on uh, on this group in this particular book, largely because in many ways I was more interested in the process of rehabilitation. Uh, But you have those who continue to view Spinoza as as a great villain, uh, as somebody who had um, truly kind of perverted what Judaism was all about. Somebody like the 19th century Italian rabbi, uh, contributor to Haskalah literature, Samuel David Luzzatto, sometimes known as Shadal, or the 20th century German Jewish neo Kantian philosopher, Hermann Cohen, uh, who viewed Spinoza, you know, they they didn't see him as kind of part of this. You know, lineage of prophets and rebels, uh, you know, but as, you know, kind of part of a different genealogy, right? I mean, as part of a genealogy of apostates, right? Even though Spinoza hadn't formally converted, they essentially viewed him as having defected. Uh, They saw him as having kind of defected to the other side and become a, a great kind of accuser of Judaism because of some of the, quite harsh things that he has to say uh, about uh, Judaism in the theological political treatise. So you have those on the other hand, and then I would say you have this kind of middle ground of people who, um, you know, they feel – uh, on the one hand that you know they regret the excommunication uh, they see Spinoza as a kind of certainly this amazing philosopher who came out of Judaism, uh, who had this you know kind of sterling character uh, even while they kind of are, made uncomfortable by aspects of his philosophy and in particular by his critique of Judaism in the theological political treatise. So you have this whole middle ground of people who want on the one hand to kind of bring Spinoza back into the fold and yet don't want to kind of, you know, lionize him to the degree that, you know, the the camp that I mentioned earlier, those who see Spinoza as, you know, simply a hero wanted to do.
1: Uh, your next chapter studies the Eastern European Haskalah, or Jewish Enlightenment. Uh, what do you see as the role of Spinoza here, and uh, does it relate to his reception in the European Enlightenment in general?
0: What's interesting about the you know the Jewish Enlightenment um, is that you know when we think about the Enlightenment, we tend to think about a, a movement in Europe uh, that was you know you know primarily uh, centered in the second half of the 17th century, and particular in the 18th century, right? And by the late 18th century, in terms of just, you know, kind of periodization, this is where we have this kind of transition from the Enlightenment to Romanticism. Uh, What's interesting about the Jewish Enlightenment, or the Haskalah, uh, is that it does begin in the 18th century, but Uh, It really experiences its high point uh, in East Central Europe, uh, in Austrian Galicia, uh, in the Tsarist Empire, uh, in the middle decades of the 19th century, uh, to the point that, you know, there was even a book that was written a few years ago by a scholar named Olga Lidbach, where she essentially argued that the Haskalah should be interpreted as the kind of romantic movement in Judaism. So I'm not, you know, I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Uh, but I, you know, I think that, you know, the, there were, you know, some differences uh, in terms of how Spinoza, you know, was received in the kind of 18th century enlightenment as opposed to how he is received in the 19th century Haskalah. Uh, I think that, you know, Spinoza in the 19th century Haskalah, and I was looking, you know, primarily a lot of Haskalah literature, you know, was written in Hebrew. Um, And so I was looking, you know, at at kind of Spinoza, you know, In kind of 19th century Hebrew, and in particular in the work of this uh, Galician maskeel named Solomon or Shlomo Rubin, who was the first to translate the ethics into Hebrew, uh, a work that was complete in 1885. But already 30 years before that, he publishes a work that's supposed to be kind of like the beginning of this translation, which is called, you know, in Hebrew, Moran Nevuchim Hechadash. Uh, or essentially like the new guide to the perplexed. In other words, Spinoza is kind of like the new Maimonides, Spinoza as a replacement for Maimonides. Uh, And what I see in this work, what I see in a lot of the work of these Maskelim who are uh, receiving Spinoza enthusiastically is this um, fundamental tension uh, between, on the one hand, seeing Spinoza as a kind of figure of rupture, as a kind of a break with the past, as something fundamentally new. Uh, And this, you know, kind of does dovetail with what, you know, scholars like Jonathan Israel, for example, have argued about the role of Spinoza in the kind of radical enlightenment of the 17th and 18th century. Right, this figure, who, as opposed to trying to represent some type of conciliation between religion and reason, is arguing for kind of a revolutionary break with tradition. So you have that element, uh, but you also have this element, this this this, this effort to kind of anchor Spinoza uh, kind of within. Uh, a kind of secret history of Judaism, you know uh, to to try to kind of excavate Jewish sources for Spinoza 's thought, uh, everything from stray rabbinic phrases to uh, passages from the Zohar uh, in other words, there's an attempt to see Spinoza as kind of a fully Jewish figure, uh, even in his heresy. Right. In other words, that his heresy, you know, is kind of part of this almost like counter history uh, that runs through Jewish history. Uh, so, you know, that's an element that you don't really see, uh, you know, in you know the kind of 17th, 18th century European Enlightenment, uh, but is a major part of Spinoza's reception in the 19th century Haskalah, the 19th century Jewish Enlightenment.
1: Your second to last site of reception is Jerusalem uh, in the first half of the 20th century uh, as Jews sought to understand Jewish nationalism and secularism um, and sort of the legacy of the quote-unquote Jewish question. Um, So what was Zionism's relationship to Spinoza?
0: You know, Zionism had a, you know, a kind of a, a, I would say, a kind of an interesting relationship to Spinoza. Uh, I would say it was certainly not a uniform relationship to Spinoza, uh, but there was a, you know, there was definitely an openness to Spinoza, which, you know, on the surface, at least, would seem to be somewhat surprising, right? I mean, if we think about Spinoza as somebody who is, you know, this kind of prototype of the individual breaking from the community, You know, kind of leaving, you know, the the Zionist historian uh, Yitzhak or Fritz Baer called him, you know, the first Jew to kind of leave Judaism, you know, without kind of undergoing a religious conversion, right? So if if you see him as a defector, as you see in in that way, you would think, well, how does he, you know, kind of fit into a movement, you know, that like all kind of nationalist movements – is emphasizing in some ways the primacy of the collective, right? The primacy of these kind of communal, uh, the you know ties, this sense of national solidarity, you know, over uh, the individual. Uh, and yet there is this whole Zionist rehabilitation of Spinoza. So I kind of looked at two elements of this, um, and again, this is primarily focused on. Secular Zionism, Um, although there is even some—I didn't really write about this so much in the uh, book—but there is something of reception of Spinoza among religious Zionists as well, which tends to be negative or at least critical, but not, you know, sometimes completely so. In other words, some of the religious Zionists figures, like um, Ruff Cook, for example. you know, saw in the same way that Mendelssohn saw, you know, elements of Spinoza, Spinozism that could be refined. Uh, you know, Cook saw Spinoza's pantheism uh, in some ways in a similar way. But in, other, in, in the chapter that I deal with, I'm, I'm, I'm interested primarily uh, in two, you know, ways in which Zionists kind of related to Spinoza. One was by seeing him as a forerunner of Zionism. Uh, And this has to do with this uh, passage toward the very end of chapter three of the theological political treatise where Spinoza seems to hold out the possibility that the Jews, uh, if they can overcome the kind of emasculating effects of their own religion – which you know seems to kind of refer to this kind of like passive messianism this kind of waiting for the messiah to happen to come i'm sorry you know through some type of miraculous means um that you know if if they're able to overcome this that they might someday restore um they might reclaim you know sovereignty they might reestablish uh, a Jewish state uh and so This is a passage that doesn't really seem to have garnered much attention until you have the emergence of a Jewish national movement. But once you did and people began kind of trying to kind of ransack the past for um, figures who might be considered precursors, Um, people discovered this passage by Spinoza and said – you know, here we have somebody who can be seen as something of a forerunner of Zionism. Uh, and so, you know, a major figure here was uh, a Jewish historian named Benzion Dineburg, uh or as he later, you know, Hebraized his name, Benzion Dinor, uh, who was a Jewish historian, actually became the minister of education in Israel in the 1950s. Uh, but another crucial figure in this vein uh, was a uh, David Ben Gurion himself, uh, who was also an extremely uh, a great Spinoza enthusiast, uh, and somebody who even you know pushed for the translation of all of Spinoza's works into Hebrew in the 1950s, while he was you know prime minister, uh, and published a very controversial article in the 1950s uh, that was at least. Understood as calling for a rescinding of the cherem or of the excommunication, the ban on Spinoza. So, kind of one uh, approach that Zionists who were drawn to Spinoza took to him was to see him as this, uh, if not founder of Zionism, at least as a kind of a, a forerunner, at least as a, a precursor. What would be called in Hebrew one of the mivasre hatziounut, one of the precursors, the forerunners of Zionism. But I also looked at the impact that a kind of secularization of Jewish – of Judaism in general, right, this whole idea in cultural Zionism of, you know, the primacy of culture, right, of basically trying to kind of transform uh, a religion uh, into a culture uh, that, you know – well, it was debated what exactly the relationship should be between this culture and traditional, you know, religious texts and sources. Uh, but once you have this kind of secularization of Judaism, uh, you kind of kind of expand uh, the purview of perhaps, you know, who can be included within the fold. Uh, and so that was kind of like another uh You know, way in which some Zionists, those who didn't necessarily even go for this whole idea of Spinoza as a forerunner of Zionism, but nevertheless wanted to see him as part, you know, of, you know, the Jewish cultural tradition, part of Jewish heritage as a Jewish philosopher. Um, And, you know, through this, you know, kind of cultural redefinition of Judaism, uh, that was their way of kind of spiriting him back, you know, through, you know, the door. Uh, and so in that chapter, you know, I focus in particular, in each chapter, I tend to focus on one, you know, figure in particular, um, but to try to kind of situate them in as broad a discourse as possible. So the, the figure that I focused on in, in that particular chapter was an important uh, East European turned Palestinian Hebrew intellectual uh from the, you know, the the Russian Empire named Yosef Klausner, uh, who uh, became a professor at the Hebrew University when it was first established in 1925. Uh, And in 1927, when they were commemorating around the globe, the 250th anniversary of Spinoza's death, uh, there was actually a, you know, there was a ceremony held at Hebrew University. uh, And he gave a a speech that was you know uh, titled uh you know to, to translate into english like the the jewish character of spinoza's philosophy uh, and what's interesting is that he you know he takes a somewhat kind of big amb- ambivalent approach to spinoza's jewishness throughout the essay uh, but he closes it uh, by reciting the traditional formula that was used to kind of lift the cheirem on an individual. He says basically in Hebrew, achinu ata, achinu achinu or you're, you know, uh, you, know y- you are our brother, you are our brother, you are our brother. Uh, so there, there was this way in which, you know, this kind of secular Zionist, Yosef uh, Klausner was resorting to this traditional religious formula. Formula in order to kind of imply that Spinoza, you know, was once again back within the fold uh, and to almost kind of give this, you know, that kind of the at least the, 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 the impression of some type of religious imprimatur.
1: I think one of the exciting things about your book is uh, not only the, the character of the local points of reception that you investigate, um, but I think as becomes evident from much of our discussion is the continuities you're able to find. Um, the struggle with, with Spinoza, this adoption of Spinoza across different periods and different spaces. Um, the, the final sort of point that you, that you deal with um, is Spinoza's reception in the fictional works of Nobel Prize laureate uh, Yitzhak Pashavec Singer. Um, so can you reflect a little bit about the role he plays? It's a, an interesting one and I think a little bit of a unique case study um, in the work of Singer.
0: Yeah, this was a, uh, this was like one of the later chapters that I added as the, as the kind of manuscript took shape. Um, but, you know, what struck me about Singer's writing was that there really isn't anything about Spinoza per se, you know, in, in other words, in all the other chapters I had looked at um, authors, philosophers, politicians who were engaging with, you know, the life of Spinoza in some fashion. And actually Singer doesn't do this. I mean, apparently there is some work in his archives in uh, Texas, you know, where he he took a stab at it, but he never published anything on it. But what's interesting is that in many of Spino- Singer's writings, and two in particular, um, a work that was translated a story that was translated as the Spinoza of Market Street uh, and also this you know kind of massive novel called The Family Muscot what you have is um a figure who is uh you know you have a character who is basically a spinozist uh, a character who is basically enthralled with Spinoza um i mean you know in The Family Muscot you know the you, the introduction to this figure you know Asa Heschel, um, you know, when you first meet him in chapter two, uh, he kind of arrives in Warsaw and basically almost has nothing to his name except the copy of Spinoza's Ethics. Right So what was interesting to me was that already, when you come to singer, it's almost as if this kind of reception, this rehabilitation of Spinoza, has become a theme in its own right. It's become part of the culture to the point that it can be kind of ironized, that it can be um, criticized. Uh, and I really see a singer uh, as kind of approaching Spinoza uh, in a more critical vein. Uh, than you know some of the figures that I you know had studied to that point in the book.
1: The points of reception you discuss in the book cover both works of fiction and of nonfiction, um, and I wanted to ask you what the difference between the two types of, of works are uh, with regards to reception history. Uh, if Spinoza's image was indeed so flexible, uh, is that not in a sense a fiction?
0: Well, that's a good that's a good question. I mean, you know, I think. And that's a and that's a good question about reception history in general. And I would say that very often these images of spinoza that were being produced, I think, were somewhat fictitious. In other words, uh the individuals who I was studying, uh, they were kind of creating a Spinoza uh that felt, who felt somewhat kind of closer to them, right? Who could be a kind of spiritual, you know, father figure, a figure that they would feel a special kinship with, uh, or who could be seen as kind of inaugurating uh, the very kind of Jewish identity that they themselves were, you know, kind of constructing. Uh, so I do see there as being something fictitious. Uh, but, you know, early in the book, uh, you know, I, there was a a quote, uh, by Moshe Edel, the great, you know, scholar of the Kabbalah, uh, that I remember kind of encountering when I was writing the book and in particularly the introduction, uh, that read something like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but that like the history of misunderstandings is as important as the history of understandings. Uh, and that, you know, it is true that, you know, that the, the there, there were distortions, uh, to the historical Spinoza to the Spinoza of history, in many ways what i 'm studying more in this book is you could call it as I call it the Spinoza of memory uh, but that you know that 's part of understanding reception right is very frequently ideas you know they do get um, reinterpreted, they do get reworked, they do get repackaged, right but if you want to understand the actual impact that they have. Uh, that's not to say it's not important to try to like set the record straight to you know that we still have works that are on Spinoza himself and that it establish a clear divide between you know again the Spinoza of history and the Spinoza of memory. Uh, but we can't simply, in my opinion, kind of reject the reception or at least those aspects of the reception that seem more kind of mythological, right? Simply because we're saying, well, it's just that this, that's just a fiction. That's not really who Spinoza was. Well, if we want to understand what Spinoza's impact was, what he came to mean as a cultural figure, uh, then we have to explore these works. And those works might be works of fiction. Uh, they might be works of, uh, you know, kind of a kind of publicistic writing that was common in the 19th century Jewish enlightenment. Uh, they might be newspaper articles. They might be journal articles. They might be anniversary tributes. Um, they might be books. They might be all sorts of things. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of trying to understand Spinoza as symbol, Spinoza as a cultural figure, all of those are important.
1: To conclude our interview, um I would like to ask you to reflect on the role of the the image of Spinoza uh, as it plays out today. Where does he feature and uh, do you think his image remains potent?
0: Yeah, that's, I think that's really it's an interesting question, and you know, I think I've been really struck, and part, partly, one one of the one of the things that really did strike me when I was writing the book was the extent to which you know Spinoza was experiencing. It seemed, you know, in the kind of early late late nineties, you know, into the twentieth into the 21st century, something of a a revival, and that's a revival in philosophical circles, uh, but also, you know, uh, know, this continued interest in Spinoza as a kind of cultural figure. I mean... Just in Washington, D.C., where I live and teach uh, several years ago, uh, there was a play written by a, not, a non-Jewish playwright named David Ives, but it was about the excommunication of Spinoza. Uh, and um, there was a, a showing of this play, uh, and it was wildly popular. They brought it back uh, for another showing at this you know, Theater J here in, in D.C. And then they held this whole event uh, one day called the a, was called the Spinozium, uh, where they had, um, not only, um, experts in Spinoza or 17th century Amsterdam, you know, share of their expertise, but they actually had a kind of an argument, uh, by, you know, two, uh, well-known Jewish lawyers in town, uh, for and against Spinoza's, uh, excommunication. And apparently in, um, in Amsterdam, uh, about, you know, maybe a little over two years ago. Uh, they even had an event, I think it was like in December 2015, uh, where they revisited the khayram. Uh So I think that, you know, there, there really is, you know, this, um, you know, continued interest in Spinoza. Um, you know, again, I think w- there's always different elements to this. Um, you know, w- and you know what, what I haven't gotten as much into in part because it's not as much the subject of my book you know why spinoza continues to provoke so much debate in terms of his actual philosophy uh and that has to do i think with a lot you know of uh, the kind of ambiguities in his philosophy ways in which you know different parts of his philosophy can be read differently or the way in which just his philosophy stands almost in this kind of um world of its own, where, you know, it can't be reduced to either kind of an idealist or a materialist reading, it seems to be kind of both simultaneously. Uh, But there's also been this, you know, kind of perennial debate over Spinoza's Jewishness and what that Jewishness meant, if it meant anything at all, what it consisted of. Uh, And I think, you know, that, you know, that remains, you know, a a debate that shows kind of no sign... Of abating. Uh, and partly, you know, what I suggest at the end of my book uh, is, you know, is partly what I'm tracing in the book is often very often Jewish intellectuals develop the connection to Spinoza as part of their experience of becoming estranged from tradition. Uh, so that you know reading Spinoza's ethics in secret or you know, Spinoza's ethics becoming a kind of surrogate Bible for them, right it became almost a kind of surrogate religion in the way that Jewish secularism for a time became something of a surrogate uh religion uh, and you know what I see often happening today uh, you know is you know that often Jews have very little connection uh to Judaism. Um, and this is not something that is a kind of a process that they've undergone. It's almost a kind of uh, it's just part of their inheritance, right? They've grown up with very little Jewish content in their lives, uh, and yet are often sometimes drawn to to these outsider like figures like Spinoza. And you know, so what I speculate in the end, very end of my book, is that for some of these figures, perhaps Spinoza. It's not almost like the way out you know, from Judaism uh, or at least, at least from a kind of uh, an orthodox or traditional type of Judaism. But it's a way almost kind of like back tour. It's a way of kind of expressing a Jewish identity uh, that has become much thinner.
1: I would like to end our interview today by thanking Professor Schwartz for joining us on the Jewish Studies channel of the New Books Network. We've been talking about his wonderful book, The First Modern Jew, Spinoza and the History of an Image published in 2012 by Princeton University Press.